If you have your uh, Bibles, I'm going to ask you to go Matthew 18. Uh, we're going to start in verse 15. That's going to be the anchor text today. So drop it right there, and that's where we'll spend a bulk of our time. We are um, we're in the middle, second week in, in a, a sermon series called My House, Volume 2. Uh, where we're really asking the Lord to really investigate our, our households, um, the things that happen in our households, the relationships from marriage uh, to our parenting children, uh, relationships to neighbors, all the things surrounding um, our households. We're asking the Lord to do that in our households. Now, if you were not a part um, of, of back in 2000, I think it was March in 2018, um, the Lord kind of called our church to a gathering, a, a sacred gathering where we prayed and fasted and said, Lord, what would you have us do at our church? Where, where do we need to right some wrongs or maybe to reveal something to us? And what he did during that time, he very clearly affirmed uh, that he wanted our church to champion the family. Our, our own homes, the household, uh, because the, the light that shines the farthest shines the brightest at home. And this was not to the exclusion of reaching the nations, but because of the nations. And, and I believe that Jonathan Edwards, when he said that every Christian family ought to be as if it were a little church, that's what our families are supposed to be like in our home. But today, the American family um, should almost be put on the endangered species list because it's on the verge of this extinction. It's a, it's a radically changing world, and our family dynamics, the traditional family of, of husband, wife, mother, father, kids, all of that is slowly eroding before our eyes and has been replaced by hooking up cohabitation and quick-trigger divorce. The unit is crumbling. Family units are a mess in our culture. But God's word is not silent about the family. He comes to the rescue and it gives us hope. And I believe that we are a church, if we submit to the teaching of God on the family household, the unit that we have, I believe that he not only redeem and, and, and repair what has been broken in our homes and households, but he can show us that how we can be a light to the world, that people would look at our marriages and say, I want that. And look at our households and say, this is a beautiful thing. How do you do that? That is how we can have a, a household that has been transformed by the gospel, and be used for the glory of God. And I remember how we got there as a church back in 2018. And what we did, there was a very distinctive day where we stood up and we declared Joshua 24, 15. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. There was a line drawn and we said, let's go. Let's champion the family. And it was a great day in the life of our church. And out of that was birth, family worship. Many of you begin to do things in your home like reading, praying, singing that continues to, to really permeate through our church. And we didn't know how to do that at first. Well, how do I do all of these new things? How do I turn my home, my little tribe into this church that it should be like? Well, we went to Deuteronomy 6 also known as the Shema, uh, where Moses laid out the framework and foundation for a family, a household that actually serves the Lord and tells us what it should look like. And he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. 
You shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk them as you sit in the house, and as you walk by the way. And you shall bind them as a sign in your hands, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. And you shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Does your household look like that? Man, oh, if we could take Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9 and tattoo that thing all over our homes. Pictures, walls, writings on our hearts. If we could just do that. Does your family household look like that? Or does it look like a privatized hobby that you do and you kind of keep it separate from all the other days of the week? It's so private that no one in your home even notices. And clearly, if no one notices in your home, no one notices outside the home. Your neighbors don't have a clue. The nations surely don't know. Or is your love of God so deep and so good that it permeates in every domain of your life, your own personal life? It permeates your marriage it permeates how you speak to your children. You speak the scriptures, you read, you pray, you sing in such a way that people notice. The neighbors begin to say, wow, what's going on there? And then the nations know who your God is. You see, if we do love the Lord our God with all their heart, sign and all might and soul, people will notice and they will see how good God is. And it begins with us and our households. Well, you might say, that's easy for you to say, Pastor, my life is a mess right now. My marriage feels like a prison. My kids, they've gone to the dark side. And my neighbor hasn't spoken to me since I ran over his petunias with my John Deere. I don't know how that works, but that's not my life. We all have relationships. And if you have relationships, you will breathe conflict This might be your story today. You might be in a relational storm in your marriage, in your family, or even in your neighborhood right now. But I would venture to say that the measure of our godliness and our holiness is not best measured up against when there's no storms, but in fact when we are faced with conflict. And there's this great opportunity for us to grow as Christ in Christ when we're faced with conflict. It's actually a barometer of our spiritual health, how we handle conflict. All right, so when we engage conflict, we all engage it, we all have it. How we handle it will reveal how spiritually mature you are and how I am. So if I take conflict and I play it like avoidance, bitterness, Pride running away from, that actually reveals my spiritual immaturity. If I resolve it in a godly way, for my own good and for the glory of God, then that and that only shows a growing spirituality in me. And I can become, I can lean into a more mature Christian and actually can become more Christ-like in the midst of conflict. So today... As I said, we're all in relationships. If you are in a relationship and you have relationships, you will have conflict. Matthew 18 today, the classic uh, scripture passage on confrontation 
um, is going to address these things, not only in our household. So yes, we'll speak to the, the married couple who has conflict. If you're married, you have conflict. To the family unit of children, and it doesn't just extend to there. Singles, if you don't, you're not married, you don't have a spouse, and your household's smaller, it's going to extend to you as well as it's going to extend to all of us who are in the household of faith, which is the church. And we have to lean into Jesus' teaching here. Once again, this is a familiar passage. It's not going to be anything new I'm pulling on you today. But my appeal to you today is to get past the cognitive understanding, the things you've heard before, and that we could actually be a church that begins to actually practice these things in such a way that not it just minimizes our conflict, not so we can avoid conflict, but that we can become a holier people through the midst of the conflict. So let me pray, and we'll open up the word. Father, uh, Father, we come to you today and not under any kind of pretense or false uh, counterfeit world where we don't think we have conflict in this place. We all do. Whether it be this morning, this moment, it'll be tomorrow or the next day. Father, we cannot escape the conflict because we live in a world that is still marred by sin. But there is great hope. Father, you have modeled a conflict resolution for us. You have uh, put on flesh as Jesus, and you've spoken to us that we can actually hear the voice of God and you speaking to us on how we can engage conflict in a way that is good for us, in a way that honors you. Father, we submit to your teaching today so that it can transform us and transform our households and transform our church. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so let's go Matthew, uh, as I said, Matthew 18, we're going to go 15 through 20. Now the context here, really all of Matthew um, 18 through 20 is basically Jesus is teaching um, what a community that is centered around the gospel looks like. Hey, you believe in Jesus, you believe in the gospel, okay, now this is what the community looks like. These are characteristics of a people that love Jesus, and he goes right into conflict here in Matthew 18, 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. should underline that especially. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you. Yet every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church... Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Now, let me get this out of the way first, because verse 20 there at the end has to be one of the most hijacked and misapplied verses in all of Scripture. Uh, many have taken that passage and tried to justify a sermon on the sofa, uh, a gathering at Starbucks with a couple of friends, or a small group, a barbecue at your house as the church gathering. Um, and that's just simply not the truth. You can't take verse 20 and, and set it aside from the whole context of the entire verse and say, I can use this however I want to. We have to look at the context, and the entire context Jesus is saying this, conflict's going to be hard. 
It's going to be very difficult. But trust me, I, the omnipresent Jesus, fully God, everywhere at all times will be with you in the midst of your conflict. All right? So we have to be careful always about taking verses out of context. And he's talking about biblical conflict. Now, what's important here is this is one of the very first teachings of Jesus to his people. It's about conflict management, conflict engagement. He just right out of the gates, he leans in. So that shows you how important that this topic actually is. He says, before you can take this gospel to your neighbor, before you can take the gospel to your workplace, to your school, uh, to the ball fields, before you can take, uh, take the gospel to Brazil, to pack your bags, to get your passport stamped, before you put your missionary fanny pack on, you have got to learn how to engage in proper biblical conflict management. All right, so this is important teaching uh, from the Lord. Now, here's why this is important, because we have to acknowledge that there is conflict. As I said, uh, we, we, we all have conflict, but that's not necessarily the picture that the world portrays. Culture and even social media plays in this a huge, huge way, paints this unrealistic picture that there's either very little or no conflict in our lives. Uh, marriage, for example. Marriage kind of, you get this idea that's kind of out there that marriage is bliss. And, and your day and your marriage maybe starts out with breakfast in bed and it ends with a rose petal bath and a steak dinner by candlelight. Reality, it's a Pop-Tart that starts the day. It's a two-minute shower if you're lucky and it ends with a DiGiorno, all right? That's reality. Instead of you walking on a beach with you holding your wife's hand or spouse's hand, gazing into her eyes, you end up in the bed holding onto your phone, scrolling through Facebook. Instead of you gazing back and forth to your spouses and talking to them, man, you're gazing at a Netflix binge. Instead of your marriage looking like the notebook, it looks more like a post-it note, right? <laughs> Think about Instagram fams. You know what Instagram fam is? A very faux family that Instagram makes it look really, really good, right? A picture where all the kids and the whole family are smiling, their hair's all brushed up, looking all good. It's been edited a little bit. All the kids, they got to church on time, right? And they just come into church and they're skipping, singing hymns, smiling, right? And that's not reality. Reality is they woke up with weeping and gnashing of teeth, screaming over their outfits. I don't want to wear this. They're down on the ground melting, right? And you grab them, you throw them in the car. You're running late, clearly running late. You're throwing some McDonald's pancakes at them in the back seat. Get out of the car. Let's go. You're smacking them on the butt with your Bible on the way in. That is reality, right? There's conflict. It doesn't just, uh, it doesn't just limit to our families and our households. It's in our neighborhoods, right? Neighborhoods, when you watch like sitcom shows and movies and things, it kind of paints this picture where you never have conflict with your neighbors. Everything's just awesome. Well, that's not true. We know that's not true. Why? Because we build privacy fences to hide from our neighbors. We get deadbolts and doorbell cams. Why? Because we are expecting conflict. Where there is relationships, there will always be 
conflict. No one is immune to this. But we have a fighting chance. We are the redeemed people of God, the blood-bought people of Jesus. We know how to navigate through conflict because he's told us. And we're going to look at that in Matthew 18. And we're going to look at three things. I'm going to show you three things what I believe in this text shows of how we can do this in a way that honors the Lord and is for our good. Those three things, the first one is humility. And we'll walk through these as we go through. The second piece will be holiness. And the third will be a forgiving heart. Okay? So the first thing here is this. So there's conflict, all right? It doesn't matter if it's your marriage, within your family, or with your neighbors, or with us in the church. You have to come to the fight, come to the conflict with humility. It is the foundational bedrock principle for conflict resolution is you have to come with humility. Humility. Charles Spurgeon said that pride cannot live beneath the cross. There's no place for pride when it comes to conflict management. And if your desire in this conflict is to win the argument, to be right, if that desire is greater than your desire to be humble, this will always fail and the Lord will never be honored in your conflict. Humility is a foundational principle on both sides. All right, let me show you how, uh, how important this is and why it's such an issue with us to admit fault, to come in as humble people. How many of you would say that, yeah, you've sinned against someone, but they started it? Yeah, maybe. If I didn't really ask you to raise your hand, you probably would. But yeah, I acted like an idiot, but it was their fault. Hey, I'm sorry for being a jerk when I responded to your jerkness. Right? You know, when you were being a dirt bag, I sinned against you and your dirt baggery. Yeah, that was me. I apologize. That's not humility. That's pride clothed in a fake apology and a fake confession. That's how prideful people apologize. I'm sorry you feel that way. I didn't mean to make you feel that way. I often talk about how celebrities and athletes apologize. That's what they do. That's pride, and that is not humble. That is not humility. We have to come saying, okay, I have got to come with great humility. I have to come owning my own. It's never one person's fault. Never one person's fault. And we know this teaching here, he's teaching this conflict resolution here, but how he gets us ready for it really is back in Matthew 7. Back in Matthew 7, before he even gets to the confrontation, he says, hey, before you try to do some eye surgery on your brother, before you get in there and start cutting up at his speck, boy, you better take the big old law coming out of your head, out of the way. Now, here's what Jesus was saying in that moment. He wasn't saying that if you have sin in your heart that you cannot approach and engage someone else. That's not what he's saying. He's saying when you do come as this brother with humility, you better check yourself you have to own your own. You come in a posture knowing that you are a sinner saved by grace. And you are in desperate need of his grace today as the day that you believed. That's the posture of humility. And if you might be sitting there saying right now, all right, not me. I hear what you're saying. But I didn't do anything wrong in this situation. It's all them. 
I would ask you to measure yourself up against the great commandment. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all the soul, with all your might. You see, my guess is you probably failed at that today. And when you measure yourself up against that, it cuts the swagger out of you. It cuts the pride from underneath you. Then you don't come to that fight. You don't come to the conflict thinking you're a little holier than thou. You come with a humble posture seeking to own your own. And sometimes owning something you may not even need to. I have watched this work an amazing, beautiful picture before. When two people come together in humility, owning their own, that is the recipe for godly conflict resolution. It has to start with humility on both parties. We know that it's continued also in Matthew 18. Right before he says do this, uh, Peter, or actually it was disciples, said, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Right? Got a little pride working in there. Who's the greatest? Right? And Jesus says, He says, the least of these will be the greatest. Those who are uh, last will be first. He says, those that die will live. The way to get is to give. He kind of paints this upside down kingdom economics thing where it's exactly opposite of the way we think. That humility is the basis of conflict resolution. So now that we have the basis, okay, I want to lean into the next piece in Matthew 18, 15. Let's look at that. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. So two times we see the word brother. Why is this important? Because Jesus is saying this. The offender is a brother. If the person that you've offended or has offended you is in fact a believer, they are first and foremost a brother or a sister in Christ. They're definitely not an enemy. They're not even a co-worker, a friend. They're not even your spouse. Like before, uh, my wife is my wife. She is a sister in Christ. That is, is establishing this familial language that is a picture of heaven where there will be only brothers and sisters in Christ and no other relational position will stand. So when you come at your wife or your husband... Do you look at them as a brother and sister in Christ? Or do you look at them as an enemy where you have an axe in hand trying to cut them down? Man, they are a brother and a sister in Christ that we need to engage with humility. And that's the language that he used here. So I think the next piece is this. Once we see that they are a brother or a sister in Christ, it kind of pulls in the heart there a little bit. Then Jesus says, well, what do we do with it? Okay, I get it. They're a brother, sister. Now what do I go do when they've offended me? Well, the first thing he says is to get on your phone and start sending a lot of emotional text. I need you to, if you gather a prayer group, y'all get together your small group and lift up a prayer request for them. Uh, Or to subtweet or to go to Facebook and just bash this person, but don't mention their name. They'll get it. They'll know you're really talking about them. Or to use that new beautiful gift of Instagram where you just mute the person, right? Right? That's not what he says to do. That is not what he says to do. He says, go to the person. It is between you and them alone. Oh, church, if we could get this right. Oh, if we could get this right. 
This would be such an incredible, incredible thing if we could just get this, this part right. Why is it so important to go to the individual first? Well, number one, it clearly protects the unity of the church. I don't have to pull 23 people in to get counsel on what to do. Right? I don't need that. Listen, if you have conflict with someone in your life, in your marriage, or a friend, a, a neighbor, someone in this church, don't come to me first. You know what I'm going to tell you? Guess. Have you gone to them yet? That's what I'm going to tell you to do. And, and if someone comes to you and says, hey, I got this problem, you won't believe what they did to me. Stop. Don't say anything else to me. I will not lend my ear to this gossip. Have you gone to them? Oh, oh, that's uncomfortable. What do you mean? <laughs> that's a little awkward. No, this is right. This is the way to not only protect the church, the bride, the unity, but this is actually the prescription to go to that begins to have this resolution done in a godly way. And this is a countercultural thing, right? Culture would say, this is stupid. This is foolish. You don't do that. You cut them down. They, they hurt you. You hurt them back. They hurt you. you. You run away, right? You get revenge on this person. And Jesus' teaching steps in the middle of this as he turns it upside down. He says, rather than seeking revenge, how about you seek redemption? Instead of you winning the argument, why don't you win the brother? Instead of you running away, how about you run too? This is countercultural conflict management. And clearly this requires, once again, a lot of humility. Because even the first step here, we, we show them what to do. The first step doesn't always work, does it? Even if we come with humility, Right? And the basis of that and the good foundation, even when we do that, sometimes it just doesn't work good. So then he comes back and says, hey, the next time, go bring a brother or sister with you. Go bring another person in. Now, he didn't say go bring a coworker in. He didn't say go to a, Christ, a, a worldly counselor. He didn't say go tell a wise person to come in and speak. He said a believer. It's what he means here, another brother or sister in Christ, someone who's drank from the same well that you have that Jesus is. You don't run and get counsel from anyone else. They're toxic. They're acidic. And we lean and we pull other people into our story who are believers in Christ. And that requires humility too, right? Because when I pull them in, then they're going to see all my mess. They're going to they're going to see my marriage. It's not so good. It's not as Instagram worthy as they think it is. And then I have to air my dirty laundry. Well, what does that do? It, well, it takes you back to point number one. It takes you back to humility. Pride says I'm strong. I can fix anything. I don't want to tell anybody. Humility says I need to invite someone into this deal because I can't fix this myself. And just a side part right here from a marriage perspective. That ought to be loud and clear right there. We're talking about grace marriage in our church. The first way that you can reconcile your marriage and be all that God desired to be, you have to admit that it's not. That is not weakness. That is, in fact, strength. And let's go to the second point here. Holiness. Second point here is holiness. So conflict resolution requires humility, and it requires holiness specifically a commitment to the individual 
for personal holiness and corporate holiness. So that's got to be the banner. Like I'm going into this and it's not all about me. Like if, if I go into the fight thinking this is hard on me and this is uncomfortable for me and I got to get past this for me, 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 and it's all individualistic, focused on me, it won't go good. I've got to come into it saying I, I need to protect and fight with personal holiness and a commitment to a corporate holiness. But this is hard. Why don't more churches do this? Why, why don't churches actually do I mean, this is a passage. How old is this? 2,000 years old. Why do we today continue to fight to actually do this? Some would say today, well, that's all great. I agree with it. It's right. But then no one does it. How crazy is that? Or the accusations of this is ludicrous or this is legalistic. We don't have to do this stuff anymore. We say things like, stay in your lane. If you, you, that's your business. That's your business. It has nothing to do with me. You stay over there. You stay out of my world. I'll stay out of your world. And this is so untrue. What you do, your conflict affects everybody else in your household and in your church. You know, Joshua spoke about this often. We know that he was trying to get sin out of the camp in Israel and that so many of those paid the penalty for the sins of some. Paul echoed this in the epistles in the New Testament. A little bit of leaven rules the whole lump thing. It's the idea that, that a little bitty virus over here of unresolved conflict, bitterness breeds gossip, hate, and that just slowly bleeds out in the church like a virus that must be extinguished. I think another reason why churches don't do this today, and this is partly on leadership, a lot of it's on leadership, is because they're more concerned with metrics than they are the holiness of their people. If they start doing this, I might lose a lot of people. And I like to post on Instagram and Facebook about how many people we had today. It looks better if I have more people, and then if Joe and Susie leave, oh, it's not good. Maybe Joe and Susie are attached to Bob and Jennifer, and they take them, and they're gone. I've lost them. I lose their tithe and their generosity. Now my metrics are slowly declining. And this looks like an unsuccessful church now, right? Only do I believe that Jesus will build this church or not. If I don't believe it, then I'll say, hey, let's not do that. We don't want to lose people. I'll get them, Jesus. I'll gather them all together. I'll build a lot of numbers and keep producing services. We'll do that here. I don't do that. I say I'm more concerned. We're more concerned with your holiness than we are the metrics of this church. I'll let him deal with all that. And it's hard. It's uncomfortable. But we, before we can have any peace in this conflict management, in our households, our homes, our marriages, we have to be committed to a personal holiness first. That's, I mean, that's the banner of all this. It really, really kind of comes down to that. It really is because every single conflict can make us more like Christ if we, if we work it according to God's plan. Let's move to the last piece here. A forgiving heart. A forgiving heart. Now, Peter heard Jesus' teaching here in Matthew 18. He heard it. He's processing it. He's right there just like you and me. And he says, in verse 21 and 22, 
Lord, how often will my brother sin against me? And I forgive him. As many as seven times. Jesus said, I do not say to you seven times, but 70, seven times. In um, Judaism, there was a, a requirement that you would extend forgiveness to a brother or sister three times. That's all you had to do. Three strikes, you're out. You go beyond that, not obligated. So Peter knew that. So Peter, thinking he's like captain of the Christianity team, the varsity, I'll ask a good question in front of Jesus, let everybody see this. Hey, Jesus, how about if I do seven times? And Jesus mocks him and rebukes him and says, no, uh-uh. It's not seven times. It's 77 times. What was he saying to Peter and to his disciples? He wasn't saying there was a, a number that was placed upon the number of times you forgive. He's saying it's limitless. Peter, disciples of Jesus, there is no limit to how many times you forgive. Why? Because Jesus Christ's forgiveness of us is limitless. For those who trust and believe in Christ, he gives, he gave on the cross, and his forgiveness for us today is limitless. It never runs out. Like he never gets tired of forgiving me. Enough of this, man. This is the 50th time I've asked you to not do this, and you've done it again. Go get in the corner. You need to go to timeout and think about what you did. That's not what Christ does. He looks at me, and his forgiveness never runs out. I love what C.S. Lewis says about this. He says, to, begin, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. You see, whenever you think that you're good, go back to the cross. Go back to the feet of the cross. And it wasn't just then, it's now today. The Christian falls at the feet of Jesus every single day, not just when they believe because we need it every single day day. God has forgiven the inexcusable in us then, and he still does it today. Andy Stanley put it like this. I love this quote as well. In the shadow of my hurt, forgiveness feels like a decision to reward my enemy. Doesn't, doesn't it? Like, doesn't it feel like you're rewarding your enemy when you forgive somebody? He says, but in the shadow of the cross, forgiveness is merely a gift from one undeserving soul to another. Man, understanding how God dealt with our past sin, with our present sin, should impact how we then in turn to our spouse, to our children, to our neighbors, to our church people, and extend the same kind of forgiveness that was been extended to us. You see, Jesus is not holding an axe over you. He's not threatening you. He's not throwing back up your 20 years ago sin stuff. He's coming at you with a forgiving heart with grace-filled heart. And that is how we have to do that. Now, you might say, listen, I just don't see it. I still don't see it. They're not deserving. It's always their fault. How many times do I have to forgive my husband for not taking the trash out? How many times do I have to forgive him for being inconsiderate? He doesn't come home and ask me how my day was. How many times do I have to forgive him for being so selfish? Seventy-seven times. 
limitless. Why? Because Christ has forgiven you that many times. How many times do I have to listen to my wife nag me all day long about this, about that? She's done this. She's done that. How many times before I don't have to forgive them anymore? None. Limitless forgiveness. You see, when we begin to forgive like that in our marriages, then the world will want to know why you do that. How do you do that? And it is the power of Christ in you. Now, there's a lot of caveats in this message, okay? And what I want to say in this about this idea of forgiving hearts, this is not giving a permission to those who possibly might be in an abusive marriage, an abusive situation, an abusive relationship for you just to continue to lay down and forgive. That's not what we're teaching here. You might need to remove yourself from that situation. The teaching Jesus here is doing is is imploring that we would have this heart, this posture of a forgiving heart and not hold on to bitterness because bitterness eats us from the inside out. Some of you, as I said, man, you, you, you might be like, how do I forgive when the pain is so deep? How do I do this? How deep was the pain of Jesus as he was merciless, beat, beaten on the cross, tormented, flesh being torn from his body, nails in his feet, nails in his hands, mocked, crown of thorns. How deep was that pain for you? How deep of the pain of the, of the father giving up a son, watching him, How deep was the pain of Jesus that would drive him to the point of saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? How deep was that pain? Jesus knew a pain that we don't know. And that lets you know that we have a God who understands our pain and he still implores us to forgive so what do, we, what do we do with this today? Let me, let me see if I can land this in a, in a couple of practical ways. First of all, it's so much easier to avoid this stuff. It's so much easier to, to just, man, go to the next church. Go to the next spouse. Go to a new family. It's so much easier to not deal with this stuff and dust it under the rug. You know why that's so natural for us? Because that's what Adam and Eve did. That's what Adam, our first father, did when he sinned against God and he had conflict with God. What did he do? He ran. He didn't want to deal with it. He didn't run to God. He ran away from God. That is why it's in our nature to want to run away from conflict. So this is hard, hard stuff It's not going to go away. Whatever you think that's sitting there today, either between your spouse, family, someone else in the church, it will not go away on its own. Time does not heal. Don't ever believe that. And if you don't resolve it in this way, it will go with you wherever you go. Listen, my heart's broken for people that have left this church because they were afraid to go confront someone. It's happened. Sat down with people before. Hey, why are you leaving? Well, this person did this. They weren't very nice to me. And, uh, man, I, I just, I, I don't want to be around that. I walked through Matthew 18. 
And they're just like, I just don't believe it'll work. I don't want to do that. It's so much easier for me to go down the street to the next church. They don't know me down there. I'll get a fresh start. No, you take that bitterness with you. You take that angst with you, that unresolved conflict, and it will accumulate and it will create guards in your life. You won't let anybody in because it's unresolved conflict. God is not glorified in that. And we have to be a church that's committed to being different. It might be different than 25 other churches, but it will be a New Testament church that I'm committed to doing for you and for us as a church. And I hope you're committed to doing it as well. That's why, that's when we get to verse 20 at the end, because the Lord knew this would be hard. And that's why he steps in in verse 20 and says, I'll be with you. I'll be in the midst of your fear, your awkwardness, your uncomfortability, your tendency to want to run away. I'll be there with you. It's okay. You don't have to worry about their mouths and their hearts. I'll be with you. You don't have to worry about it working or not. I'll be with you. So as we, as we close today, let me, let me say this. Let me imagine if we can, from our, uh, our own personal lives, if we could imagine a marriage where in the midst of our conflict, which we know is, is going to happen, that we would have a husband and a wife who would have humble hearts that would always be willing to say, I'm sorry, forgive me. We have a husband doing that and a wife doing that together, coming together because they're po- both personally committed to holiness, protecting something bigger than themselves. With forgiving hearts, limitless forgiveness over and over and over again, never running out. The people would say, wow, your marriage is crazy. It's incredible. Why do you keep forgiving? Because of the gospel and Jesus Christ who forgives me. Man, picture a a home where in your home, your relationships with your family members, your brothers, your sisters, your parents where there's humility, where pride is put to death, where there's a commitment to holiness in your family, where you read, you pray, and you sing. You have forgiving hearts because you're going to use those and need those. How about picturing a church? A church where everybody is a humble person coming into conflict where everybody sees their own sin. They don't think they're good people. They know that they're sinners saved by grace. Committed to personal holiness and corporate holiness for the protection of this whole body. Man, if we could be a, have marriages like that, if we could have homes like that, and we could have a church like that. So how, how can we do that in a practical way? Let me give you a couple of ways. From a marriage standpoint, let me say this. That's why we push grace marriage, not just because it's an event we need to do and put on a calendar, but because we are a people who have conflict in our marriages. No one is um, immune to that. So what are you doing about that? We want to encourage if you've not yet signed up. I, I found out before we got started, we had 13 people from our congregation sign up for grace marriage so far. I'm excited about the 13, don't get me wrong. But I know there's a lot more married people in this church than 13. We have a church of over 600 people here at this campus. And my desire is for every single married couple to commit 
to model in their family what a house uh, based upon Christ looks like, how to love the Lord. Now, you need help. As Ken said to you, we'll, we'll help you. We'll get you there. We'll scholarship you. There's people waiting around to actually give money so that you would go. You have to take these things seriously. Go talk to uh, someone in the back of the room on the way out today. Contact the church this week. Maybe you've got somebody in your life on a horizontal relationship, a friend, a coworker, someone in the room, a church member, and you just need to go get coffee this week, and you need to say, hey, I've sinned against you. Or maybe you say, hey, I think you've, you've hurt me, you've wounded me, and I want to work through this. I want to have humility. Uh, I, wanna, I want us to f- pursue holiness with forgiving hearts. Let's go do this, and you need to start doing that this week. And if we could be those people and be a church that starts to practice these things, I mean, I think we'll see, uh, I think we'll see our households become uh, beacons of light to the world. But let me say this last piece here. Before you can have any horizontal relationship wins, before you can function in your marriage, your family, your neighbors, if you want to have any success, real success in those realms, and have all those relationships function the way that they were created to function, you must have a relationship first with your creator. And you were born in this world without a relationship with your creator God. You were born in conflict with your creator. Because of your sin, he is hostile towards you. There's war between you and God. The biggest conflict of all is right there. And no amount of your doing will resolve that conflict. No amount of your church going will resolve the conflict. No amount of your giving will resolve conflict. No amount of your volunteering will resolve the conflict with a holy God. The only way that you have peace with God instead of conflict is by receiving his peace offering, which was himself in the form of Jesus Christ. It's the only way. And I hope and pray if you've never done that today, you would not try to run out and fix your marriage and fight and all. You would say, I'm tired of fighting you, God. And this would be the basis of how you can go fight well with all of your other horizontal relationships. And you would be a person today that would trust Christ for the first time in your life to make peace with God. If that's you, and I, listen, I don't presume everybody in the room has a relationship with Jesus. If that's you today, I pray that the Lord is stirring something up in you today and that you would respond. Let me pray for us. Father, we love you. And Father, I thank you for uh, speaking so clearly uh, to us through your word, putting on flesh, preaching a sermon to us in Matthew 18, God. Because we live in a sin-stained world, God, and you know these things. And as long as you have us planted here on earth, there will be conflict. God, thank you for giving us a road map to walk through these things in such a way that is for our good and for your glory. Father, until the day you snatch us all up. For those in Christ, your blood-bought people, you redeem us. You pull us up, Father, to the new kingdom, new heavens, and the new earth, Father, where there will not be another day, moment, a millisecond of conflict as it was created to be 
with you. Lord, we love you. We thank you for Jesus. We wait for you patiently in Jesus' name. Amen.